0: In darkness From the ones Who Walk in light This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is... Hey, you know what today is. Ha, <laughs> ha. Today is November the 2nd, ah, 2010. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. And you know <laughs> what I'd like to throw. Oh, well. I don't want to talk about the election. I just don't want to talk about... I don't want to think about... I just don't... I have a note here in my mail. It says... Why do you think the U.S. government has built the world's largest embassy in Baghdad? Well, I don't know. The rest of the mail, oh, thank you for the presents. I got a wonderful T-shirt in the mail. And uh, I send thanks for that. Maybe I can wear it to the KPFA Holiday Crafts Fair. That's coming up December 11 and 12. And I can talk about that. Maybe I can, no, no, I know what I'll do. I want to tell you something funny. Kind of this election thing has got me uh, a little depressed. Got a little headache. <laughs> oh, Lord. Why, why? Yes. Absurdistan. We go to Absurdistan. Here it is. There is something uh, uh, happening here. Uh, there's something called an Asian carp invasion. This is a comedy for this week, folks. Um. Uh, you can find an article about it in the 25 October issue of The New Yorker, 25th October 2010, on page 66. Reporter at large, you will find an article by Ian Fraser, always a smart, smart writer, article titled Fish Out of Water. This is about invasive species. Now, you know all about this. You've read your Al Gore. We'll talk some more about Al Gore today. Talk about talk about back in the day. Anyway, the fish are coming to get us, folks. The fish are coming. There's a video that um, is making visitors laugh until they're falling down. It's in Chicago, downtown Chicago, in the Shed Aquarium. S H E D D Shed Aquarium. It's on the lakefront there in Chicago, and this video display is very popular. It is devoted to invasive species, and what it shows is silver carp, a fish originally from China and eastern Siberia. Now, these um, invasive um, fish are jumping in the Illinois River near Peoria, and (laughs) actually, (laughs) what is it? (laughs) They're covering three states now. Anyway, a peculiarity of silver carp is that when they are alarmed by potential predators, they leap from the water, sometimes rocketing 15 feet into the air. In this video, several people are cruising in a small motorboat below the spillway of a lock or a dam, while fish fly all around. The people get hit in the arms, the back, Besides, they're ducking, they're yelling, the silver carp are flying, the boat is swerving. Aquarium visitors whoop and wipe tears away and watch the video again. Now the invasion of Asian carp into the waters of the south and the midwest differs from other ongoing environmental problems in that it slaps you in the head. I have a big caption over this article, footnote here, in which I have written, Zen Slap. I'm sure Al Gore has read this article. (laughs) The fish are slapping us in the head. Videos like this one are the reason a lot of people know about Asian carp. Not only are these newcomers upsetting the balance in mid-country ecosystems, they are knocking boaters' glasses off, breaking their noses, chipping their teeth, and leaving body bruises in the shape of fish. So far, apparently, there have been no fatalities. <laughs> this made me think of my one of my favorite nature programs in which all those brown bears are shown, you know, in the rivers and streams trying to catch the salmon. And uh you know, every so often one of the fish slaps the bears in the face i I would love to see the same thing happening to human beings uh The article goes on to say that uh uh millions of people go boating, and the novelty of being hit by a fish wears off fast. Uh, Let's see, he goes on to talk about the various kinds of carp, and then he goes on to spell out in horrible detail uh, the fact that uh, when these guys get in a lake or a river, you will soon have nothing else, nothing else. Well, one of the solutions is to eat them. Apparently, the Chinese are willing to buy them. That sounds kind of grim, isn't it? Uh, he tries to explain in the article that the Mississippi River is us. It's our bloodstream. <laughs> Some biologists I know have said that the Mississippi is the colon of the United States. It's not a very good image. Anyway... Um, After just a few decades, these carp, apparently, uh, are almost to Canada. Says here, let's see, the Mississippi floods are moving them once at large, the carp head north. They turned up in the Missouri, the Tennessee, the Ohio, the Des Moines, the Wabash, the Illinois, and... uh, Pretty soon, pretty soon, they'll make it to Canada. Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the article insists that this is not a joke, that this is not good. Not really, not good that these carp have arrived because they will change large parts of our national watersheds forever. We may be infected with a virus for which there is no cure. Well, no question about that. We all know (laughs) the end, the end is coming. I suppose, uh, might as well make jokes about it if we can. Uh, I love the artist, it's the one who's always doing the pictures on the the, uh, tragedy and the trauma of what's happening. In the water, in the lakes, in the rivers, it is uh, is a heartbreaking kind of a thing. Uh, Apparently, it's impossible to get rid of these fish, uh, whether or not they need to be gone. Let's see. There's a woman who holds a a festival, and uh, that's a tournament in which... She gives out prizes for the most fish caught, and then she uses the fish as fertilizer on her farm. They managed to catch, in the last tournament, they managed to catch 3,239 fish. These things weigh up to 50 pounds. I think it's incredible. My God. Uh, I guess we need to get that video and get it on primetime television. Maybe that will wake up A few folks. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, all may yet be well. I had so many funny things to read you this week. I, uh, I think I do need cheering up. I'm going to read you something about, uh, about the arts. But, well, let's see. No, I had this wonderful article because it's election day and I wanted to use election day to tell you all about the people who paid for the tea party. But it's too complicated. This money, 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 money. Uh, These days, everybody's saying million with an M, billion with a B, trillion with a T. And nobody listens anymore. Who can keep track of the stuff? Uh, Anyway, check it out for yourself. Uh, It's called Covert Operations. And uh, it's a couple of billionaires. They're brothers. David Koch. David H. Koch. K-O-C-H. His brother, Charles, their lifelong, what is called a libertarian, another word that doesn't make any sense anymore. And they have quietly given more than $100 million to right-wing causes. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jane Meyer in The New Yorker has reported on this. Uh, he actually, she comes up with a, yeah, follow the money. She comes up with a total of $35 billion at some point. I don't know. I just, I get the money, 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 money. Moloch—that's what it's uh, what the poets call it. Yes, Allen Ginsberg called it the Great God Moloch. Uh, anyway, this article, "Covert Operations," written by Jane Mayer, appeared in the New Yorker on August the thirtieth. And uh, it made my blood run cold. We all know that we have the best government money can buy. <laughs> it's just a question of how much, uh, I don't know, uh, yes, absurdist and, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess, what is it, It's, it's uh, what What are they calling it now, ano- anarcho-fascism, that's the new word, anarcho-fascism. I still like the word cockistocracy, that is, a nation ruled by its very worst citizens. Uh, You know how that is. Those of us who had hoped that we would have a benign country run by professors and thinkers and Al Gore types, you know. That's all over with. Mm -hmm. Thursday morning, I did a little spot on Sarah Palin. She who has given birth to a generation of vipers. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. More on Sarah later. Let me let me read you something coherent and funny because it's a wonderful portrait of us. It's called The Artistic Life. On election day, I always try to figure out how things are going for women. I like to calculate whether or not... Uh, Women have become part of the male stream world. And, of course, political women are always problematic. But I just want to read you this little uh, this little piece of history so we can get some perspective. And then I'm going to dig out the piece I have here on Geraldine Ferraro. Back in the day, now that was a laugh. She ran with Walter Mondale, you remember, for the Democratic uh, Democratic, uh, well, the, the, she and Walter Mondale <laughs> were the Democratic candidates when uh, when things were not worse, but uh, not quite as frightening as they are now. Anyway, 40 years ago, there was an artist named Faith Ringgold. She's still with us, and I want to tell you what happened to... Uh, Her feminist artwork. Uh, Forty years ago, Faith Ringgold, who is best known for her story quilts, their narrative paintings on fabric, she won a grant of $3,000 to execute a work for a public institution. Her first thought was to make a painting for her alma mater, City College. Unfortunately, City College didn't want a painting by Faith Ringgold. The artist said, you may want to give away a work of art, but you can't find anyone to give it to. Now, Faith Ringgold is 80 years old, born and raised in Harlem. She said to herself, she said, where can I go to give this work to people who are interested? See, 40 years ago, that would be 1970. Another institution came to mind, and, yes, she thought, ah, the Women's House of Detention on Rikers Island. If you're a New Yorker, you know where Rikers Island is. Ringold said, Angela Davis was in jail at the time, and I was very concerned about her. Angela Davis was being held at a facility um, in the village at Rikers Island. Uh, The artist thought, one thing's for sure, I'll have a captive audience. Uh, At the enthusiastic invitation of the warden back in 1970, Ringgold made her first trip to Rikers. You feel like you're incarcerated even if you're visiting, she recalled. You're not making any quick moves. You've got two big doors that have to slam, close and lock. It's very clear that you do not have the freedom to come and go. At the jail, she interviewed inmates about what they would like from a work of art. Most of them voiced the opinion that they wanted to be able to see women being things in the world other than some of the things they had gotten arrested for. They wanted to be able to do things in the world. Do things that were important other than being somebody's girlfriend. The resulting painting, an 8 by 8 foot mural in oils, called For the Women's House, shows several scenarios that were unimaginable at that time, 1970. Mm-hmm. A couple of female professional basketball players, one in Wilt Chamberlain's jersey, a woman doctor, a woman minister performing a marriage ceremony. <laughs> I would assume, heterosexual marriage ceremony, a female construction worker, and a woman president. (laughs) Five down, one to go. Yes, that's the one. We haven't covered that president thing, yes. (laughs) Sarah Palin, here she comes. Anyway, this mural was installed in a lobby at the jail. And that's where Faith Dringle, the artist, thought it had stayed. Until 1999, when she received a phone call from a prison guard, he explained that the Women's House of Detention had been repurposed for men. Hmm, the guard told me the painting had been taken off the wall by some male inmates, painted over with white White paint, she said. When it was installed, they told me that nobody could get that painting off the wall. Well, I'm sorry, those guys figured it out. They're not stupid, they're in jail. <sighs> Ringgold was told that her painting had not inspired the male inmates. She said, supposedly, one guy said they got tired of looking at all those bitches. One of the male inmates was going to paint his own picture on the newly blank canvas, but apparently he'd balked. Ringgold said, You don't realize how big a painting is until it's all white. The guard told her that the disfigured painting had been moved to the basement. When Ringgold called the new warden in an effort to salvage her work, he was, she says, less than sympathetic. He said he had serious problems and people killing people. He said he didn't have time for a painting. Fortunately, the Department of Correction was more helpful. They got the painting out and said, uh, we want you to come down and verify that this is the painting. ...because we are prepared to have the white paint taken off. (laughs) The artist confirmed it was her picture. It took an art restorer a year to remove the white acrylic. Afterward, the painting was returned to the new Women's House of Detention on Rikers... ...where for the past decade it has been hanging in the gym high on the wall above the basketball hoops, behind a layer of plexiglass. Earlier this year, curators at the Newberger Museum of Art in uh, Westchester sought to borrow the painting for a survey of Faith Ringgold's early work. It arrived only a few days before the show opened uh, in September last month. Uh, Now, uh, the artist show marks the first time that members of the public who have not uh, had cause to go to Rikers Island have been able to see this picture. It's wonderful to see it free, Ringgold said. I think it can inspire some women to see the history, if nothing else. It is history, isn't it? We can go ever further if we care to, and we do. And that story comes to us from Rebecca Mead, one of my favorite uh, staff writers at the New Yorker. Rebecca Mead, M E A D. That's in the twenty-five October issue of the New Yorker, twenty ten. I love the the image of this painting being whited out, white out. When I was a school teacher back in that same year, 1970, I had a large poster. Um, it's a life size portrait of a young boy, uh, an African American student. I say he was, oh, so maybe 12. He was sitting in a schoolroom, and the thing is that you could tell that this was an African American youngster, but. The painting was white. everything was white the not just the walls but the clothes, the skin, what everything The world was white, and of course the uh, uh, the message was that the child lived in a white world that 's all he ever saw. <laughs> I used to use it along with the story James Baldwin told about going to see Betty Davis in the movie of Human Bondage, right. Just imagine what those children saw when they looked at the movies at a trip. Uh, in any case, uh, I wanted to read you that story today because on uh, on days like today, I just like to keep myself distracted and cheerful, in the hope that maybe. Maybe when the day is over, we will have some good news, something to celebrate. No sense wringing our hands, you know. Uh, I think back on the, the great enthusiasm I had when uh, Geraldine Ferraro ran for office. And does seem silly to me now, but uh, actually, I think, you know, we need that. We need this... Childlike American shtick. Uh, it seems to me every time the election rolls around, I think I'm back in junior high school and there are all these pep rallies. We used to call them pep rallies. God. Uh, I guess... I guess we have to accept the fact that we elect our leaders, <laughs> our representatives, uh, emotionally, that is to say... Uh, I, I've always tried to 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 imagine what it would be like if we picked these people, you know, if we gave them tests, right? Suppose they had to pass all these uh, tests, you know, and get a PhD in politics before they could run for office. No, that's not the way Americans do things. Americans do things the hard way. It fascinates me that we're always interested, uh, well, that so many voters are interested in voting for someone they think is just like themselves rather than someone a little brighter, smarter, or, uh, what is it, experienced, equipped for the job. I think it may be a feminine, um, well, no, no, let's just say, not feminine, but those of us who are not sure that we know everything, and there are a few of us, yes, (laughs) like to imagine that there are some people in the world that we can look up to that might know more than we do, you know, and that these are the sort of people we would want running things. The older I get, the more I realize, you know, nobody's in charge here nobody's running things there is no such thing as the state you remember that great famous poem by W.H. Auden uh says we have no control over the the state we have no control over the police we have no control over anything I guess uh the piece that I wanted to read you let's see if I have time uh yes the piece on Al Gore uh Uh, (laughs) Oh, Al Gore, I was just thinking, uh, you know, it's not a metaphor when Al Gore says we're all in this thing together. Uh, His books try to explain that we are the earth. You know, it's funny how it's suddenly become possible to include environmentalism as a, a serious issue. Kind of like kind of like a yes, the women 's reproductive rights, that sort of thing, all of the issues that used to be marginal, you know, like the like the warden who said painting was um, unimportant ah, uh, oh, yes, the arts, I guess young people i I think some of them they talk like unripe fruit, they look like unripe fruit, they have a terrible tendency, those that I talk to uh to argue from what I would call uh, is it a position it's as if it's as if I don't know how to explain to them over and over again they have this born yesterday mindset uh, to explain that you know things can either get a little bit better, a little bit incrementally a little bit better or then they can suddenly get one hell of a lot worse as when George Bush is elected and we go into Iraq and history happens and we are in hell for decades to follow. Uh, Making things better is the most boring, tiresome task. You know, the uh, right wing has patience. They can make telephone calls for years on end. I think that the romantic left wingers they always think that they're going to get uh you know a new a new a new world uh I'm not sure um uh, my friends insist that television is the devil's paintbrush, but I'm afraid that I think the t v is neither here nor there uh we've always had what do you call that uh divisive political campaigns. I do think we've reached a point where calling names doesn't doesn't do much. Uh, I looked over my ballot and I figured out that um, uh, it isn't any point talking about representative government now. They're expecting the voters to know what all this stuff is about. I thought that's what we hired our politicians to do, to study. You know, to figure out what was necessary to take care of the children. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm just an Irish uh, Democrat, the kind that assumes that the use of government is to make life better for people. Like George Santayana, I assume that morality is just the desire. You know, to diminish suffering in the world, to cause less suffering, to feed more children. What was called once the greatest good for the greatest number. Never mind. All this venting is getting me nowhere. Uh, we know how it goes. No one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice. We must love one another or die. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow. Bay Sanctuary Covenant cordially invites you to our 28th annual fundraising dinner Sunday, November 14, 2010 at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. Silent Auction Wine and Cheese Reception begins at 5.15 p.m., followed by dinner at 6 p.m. $25 on a sliding scale is requested to support EBSC's work for human rights and advocacy for refugees and immigrants from over 50 countries. The keynote speaker is Law Professor Bill Ong Hing. Honorees include Professor Hing, Sylvia Rosales-Fike, student Catherine Eusebio, and Tessa Rovero Callejo. For more information, call 510 540 or go to www.eastbaysanctuary.org. This event is wheelchair accessible.